Hello and welcome to the Positively UK podcast. I'm your host Chris and today we're going to be talking about COVID and HIV. There has been an abundance of information to try and make sense of over the last year. The platform of COVID changes so frequently that it's often been difficult to always get conclusive answers to the questions that are on everyone's mind. This is especially true for people like me who live with HIV. At Positively UK, we've aimed at ensuring that the info we provide is up to date. However, this information is constantly evolving. Scientific data informs our platform, and I'm assured that we are surrounded by some of the best science to help you navigate this ever-changing pandemic. So thank you for sending in your questions because they form our conversation and hopefully alleviate some of the fears and concerns that you might experience at this time. With just under 18 million people having received the first dose of the vaccine and almost 643,000 having received the second dose, it certainly seems a positive step forward in getting the UK back on track. For many, however, the question of how to obtain the vaccination when you haven't told your GP about your HIV status has been on your mind. And we will hopefully address this and more in today's show. After our discussion back in October 2020, I brought your questions to Laura to gain greater insight into understanding what COVID means for people living with HIV. Dr. Laura Waters is a GU and HIV consultant and HIV lead at the Mortimer Market Centre in London. Laura is chair of the British HIV Association and on the British Association of Sexual Health and HIV. She is also a Terence Higgins Trust trustee and has kindly joined me today. Laura, um, a very warm welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you, Chris. How are you? I'm I'm awake and raring to go. Um, I love early starts, by the way. It's really good fun. <laughs> good for you. Um, we, we've had a few questions about COVID and HIV, and if it's okay, I thought I would launch um, straight into them. You've been working on the ICU wards during the pandemic, and while I imagine that's been really challenging, what what has it, what has allowed you to stay balanced um, during all of this time? Sure. I mean, to be clear, I did. I've done a few shifts on intensive care during my annual leave. I think the challenge with intensive care is they need people to do night shifts, and unfortunately, doing night shifts as well as your day job is just too much of a, a challenge. But it's um it's pretty intense, um, pardon the intensive pun. And really the nurses are working at a sort of patient ratio they just wouldn't normally. Normally it's one-on-one care and you've got nurses managing two, three, or even four patients. In terms of maintaining balance, obviously it's it's been very busy, um, but it's also been very gratifying and satisfying professionally to to be able to help translate confusing and sometimes conflicting messages into information that is clear and easy to understand. And I've been doing a lot of work through my role as the chair of Beaver to develop guidance and guidelines and advice. And actually the feedback has suggested that's been really well received. So that's been a really fascinating thing to be involved with. But ultimately, I make sure I rest. I try and keep my weekends as hallowed as I possibly can. And I love cooking. So that's how I keep calm. Well, I, I'm looking forward to the day, Laura, where I can actually come over to your house and actually have a meal. 
Yeah, as you know, Chris, my husband and I, especially him, are quite the barbecue fans. So, yes, we come and grill you an item of your choice when this is all over. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> okay, let's launch into the questions. There's been a lot of contradictory statements and confusion out in the press for people living with HIV and also those being asked to shield. Thankfully, we have an amazing resource in Beaver, which has really kept people living with HIV up to date with accurate information. And it's really helped dispel a lot of the myths that are out there. Laura, are people living with HIV more at risk if they're infected with COVID? So that's a question that has been at the forefront of our minds since the very beginning. And the concern that people with any condition affecting the immune system may do worse. Actually, there was some discussion that people might do better because we know that an overzealous immune response when you get COVID is one of the things that drives severe illness. Initial studies didn't show an effect, but they were quite small, just looking at handfuls of patients. And it wasn't until big studies emerged. There was one from South Africa, followed by two from the UK and more recently one from the US, all show an increased risk of mortality. So a higher risk of dying of COVID-19 if you have HIV. And that's in the region of about double the risk. To put that into context, things like diabetes or other more serious immune conditions, such as some types of cancer, are associated with a much greater risk than that. And we still don't understand, is it the HIV itself or is it other factors that are more common amongst people living with HIV? Is it being driven by ethnic group, by smoking, by deprivation? by other illnesses that are more common in people with HIV. So there does appear to be a risk. It doesn't appear to be as big as the risk associated with some other well-established conditions, and we're not certain if it's HIV-specific or driven by other factors. And is it likely that we'll, we'll find out this in, in, in months to come once the vaccination um, process has, has begun and, and the data is there? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the longer this goes on and the more people experience it and the better we are at forming the questions we want to address, then yes, I think the data will improve. Whether we can ever truly address the question of how much it's HIV specifically versus other factors, I think will be hard because many of these things aren't collected at all or they're not collected in enough detail to truly address that. So occupation is an example. People in frontline, public-facing occupations, healthcare, social care, transport, all of those things, we know that they're at higher risk of COVID and worse COVID outcomes. And we know that many people with HIV in the UK work in those occupations, but that data isn't well collected anywhere. So I think there'll always be a degree of uncertainty, but hopefully as we learn more, we can make our advice for people with HIV more specific. Sure. So, so what is the main advice for people living with HIV um, to remain COVID free? So obviously we recommend following the same instructions as everybody else. So whatever the latest government guidance is, and we know it changes rapidly and it can be tough to navigate, but of course, distancing, wearing masks and following the appropriate isolation advice. We're in lockdown right now. We've heard Boris Johnson's roadmap for emerging from that over time. But following that advice closely is, is what we recommend. 
specifically for people with HIV, it's making sure they're aware that because of the increased risk we've just discussed, they are in a higher priority group for vaccination. So priority groups go from one down to nine, one first working through, and that's based on age, occupation and presence of other conditions that increase risk. So people with HIV are all in priority group six, which means typically they'll get the vaccine sooner than they would based on age alone. People with HIV with more severe HIV, such as a low CD4 count or other factors that may increase risk, such as other illnesses, they sit in priority group four. Now, that's all been changed slightly. Those groups still exist, but there's now also a new risk calculator from the University of Oxford that's causing some confusion at the moment. But in essence, that's putting another 1.7 million people in England into the higher risk groups. That's priority group four for vaccine. It's also called the shielding group or the clinically extremely vulnerable group. All the terminology is a bit confusing but a number of people with HIV have received that communication too. So in summary, increased risk, therefore vaccination earlier in line with people with asthma, diabetes and other conditions, and any hint of other risk factors than priority group four. Okay. I mean, I was fortunate enough to receive my vaccine recently from the, the wonderful team at St. Bart's Hospital. So a big thank you to them. Are there any interactions between COVID vaccines and HIV medication? Sure. Firstly, yes, the uh, HIV team at Bart's really are fantastic and absolutely not. There is no interaction between the vaccine and HIV medication. And that's a concern we've heard from a number of people. And it's one of the things we've tried to address in our plain English guidance on the Viva website. There is nothing to do with HIV medication that stops the vaccine working. The vaccine doesn't stop the HIV medication working. And people who've had allergies to HIV medication in the past, that doesn't overlap with allergies to the vaccine. So we've had questions from people who may have had, for example, a back of ear hypersensitivity, which was a common allergic reaction back in the day. And there is no increased risk of vaccine problems if you've had that allergy in the past. Laura, why are different vaccinations used for different patients or in fact, are they? So in the UK, there's two vaccines actively being used at the moment, which is the Pfizer vaccine and the AstraZeneca or Oxford vaccine. Now, essentially, what people get depends on what supplies are available. So uh, where you go may have Pfizer, may have AstraZeneca, may have both. They're considered interchangeable. There are some differences in the results if you look closely, but actually both offer really good protection. And my advice would be to accept whichever one you are offered. The key thing is getting a vaccine on board as soon as possible, more than worrying about which type. Now, as more data emerges, if certain vaccines are not so good against the dominant variant, so the trouble with COVID-19, as with any virus from that family, is it changes and evolves over time to create these variants, which have been in the press quite a lot. And some of the vaccines seem to perform less well against some of the variants. Although the most important thing is making sure they're still protecting people against severe illness. And there they all do still seem to be protective. So as we learn more, the vaccines will evolve. We may prefer some vaccines over others for some groups as we get more data. But right now, any vaccine is a good vaccine. Okay. Um, 
Just going back to something you were speaking about earlier, you mentioned shielding and many people living with HIV have recently received letters about shielding due to a combination of individual characteristics and underlying health conditions. In fact, I received one through the post the other day. Is there new evidence to suggest that this is now needed? That is another very good question, Chris. And the answer is we don't really know. So this is all driven by this um, QCOVID Oxford University calculator. So they already use similar calculators, actually. So, for example, when we're trying to work out if someone's at high risk of heart disease, we do a calculator called Q-Risk, and it puts in various factors such as age and smoking and cholesterol, and it tells us what is the risk of someone getting heart disease over the next 10 years. So QCOVID is based on a similar thing, taking numerous factors and predicting whether someone's at high risk of severe COVID illness or not. The challenge is we don't really know how all these different factors are weighted. There's some conflicting information as to whether HIV is even included or not. And without fully understanding how the calculation is is calculated, it's hard to give specific advice. And you're right, a number of people with HIV have received these shielding communications. We don't know if that's being driven by inaccurate coding somewhere. So actually going back almost a year ago, some people got shielding advice when there was no advice for them to shield based on their HIV status, because somewhere on a database, their code suggested they had severe immune suppression. So an immune system that would put them at risk. We know that was based on inaccurate coding. So This time round, it's possible some people's coding is inaccurate somewhere in the system. However, it's also possible that this new calculation is accurate and there are other factors unrelated to HIV that's driving someone being advised to shield. So we're trying to get some more information. We've contacted NHS Digital who roll this kind of stuff out. And as we learn more, we'll keep people updated. Right now, uh, the advice would be, if you do not think you should be in that category, speak to your GP because the GP can recode you and downgrade your risk from high to moderate. And we'd recommend a moderate risk coding for people with HIV based on what we've already discussed. So people can contact their GPs to find out more about this. Absolutely. No, there's, there's a clear mechanism to do that and clear instructions for GPs. What we're hoping is that HIV clinics may be able to do the same. But again, without fully understanding what's driving some of these calculations, I'd be reluctant to downgrade someone unless it was really obvious that they had no other risk factors. Of course. So following on from that, do people living with HIV and other comorbidities, for example, respiratory, diabetes, etc., have an increased risk of COVID? As far as we understand, yes. So that's why if we look at the Beaver guidance, we say if you have HIV and another one of the conditions, so there's lots of conditions that all sit in this priority group six or the moderate risk group, that includes asthma, high blood pressure and various other common illnesses. If you have HIV and another one of those, then yes, we think that would further increase your risk and we would advise being more cautious. Laura, um, one of the questions that we received was, if someone living with HIV is admitted to hospital with COVID, are there any interactions between medications used to treat the symptoms of COVID and antiretrovirals? So yes, there absolutely are. And that's why one of the first sets of guidance we put out 
was critical care guidelines. So these are guidelines developed by Beaver, but co-badged by the Intensive Care Society, because we recognise that intensive care specialists are more likely to look to their own society for guidance than necessarily others. So we co-badged this guidance with the Intensive Care Society, and it covers some of the key issues for people living with HIV. Things like reminding intensive care teams that people with HIV can do just as well if they get admitted to intensive care as anybody else, that there are important interactions. So the steroid used, dexamethasone is a steroid that was shown in a UK-led study to reduce the risk of dying. And it's something that anybody who needs oxygen support gets given routinely now. And that can affect the levels of some HIV drugs. So we do advise adding in other drugs or switching where possible. The importance of maintaining HIV treatment. If people can't swallow, if they're sedated and being ventilated, then that may involve switching to drugs that can be given down a little tube down the nose, which is how people get fed and get many of their medications when they're sick. Thanks, Laura. That offers some relief knowing there is a process of awareness when it comes to the journey for patients who have received care. I and, and I'm sure many will have heard about the effects of long COVID. Is there a likelihood of long-term issues after COVID for people living with HIV? So the answer to that is we really do not know yet. So long COVID, again, is evolving and emerging as the pandemic continues. But it's the presence of persistent symptoms likely related to the effect of COVID. So symptoms affecting the lungs. We, we know that the lungs can get quite significantly damaged after COVID, but there's also effects outside the lungs and things like tiredness, brain type symptoms, so poor concentration or kind of a, a foggy thinking. Heart problems have been reported and just generalised kind of fatigue and tiredness. There'll be numerous other things that come out as we learn more. And we just don't know at the moment what the risk of getting long COVID is. And we really don't know if there's any increased or decreased risk amongst people living with HIV. So it's a really important area of research. There'll be an awful lot of work going on looking at this, trying to understand how common it is, what's driving it, and also what strategies may make it better. And as we learn more over time, then again, it's something that Beaver will be focusing on in our guidance to best signpost people to the right advice and support. And being able to refer to the Beaver guidelines has been an invaluable resource during this period and which anyone listening can refer to in the show notes of this podcast. While I'm sure that many people have followed the lockdown and either shielded and kept to the guidelines, I'm also certain that people have been still having sex during lockdown. Understandably, people are missing human connection and for those who are hooking up, is there a way that they can remain safer in the current climate, i.e. through PCR tests or, or rapid tests? Sure. Um, so that's something, again, that, that people have been discussing um, since the beginning. And actually, there is guidance for this. So um, BASH, the British Association of Sexual Health and HIV, which is Beaver's sister organisation, produced some guidance um, fairly early on last year. And also the Terence Higgins Trust, um, very large sexual health and HIV charity, um, Dr. Michael Brady, who's their medical director, put out some advice as well in August of last year. Now, essentially, some of it's fairly obvious. So avoiding close contact, including sexual contact with anybody who's got COVID symptoms, 
or knows they have COVID. So the same advice you'd apply to kind of households. If you've got COVID or a positive COVID test, you try and isolate within a household. Testing in order to decide whether to have sex with someone, I guess, is an option, much in the way that you can test before you get on an aeroplane. Uh, you could test. It depends on the availability and accessibility of tests, of course. Having sex with people, ideally in your household, so people that you're already in close contact with, would be preferable if that is an option. And certainly in his THT advice, Mike advises avoiding kissing and choosing sexual positions where your face isn't near the other person. So we know it's it's from the, the mouth, the breath um, that and droplets that the virus is being transmitted. So minimising kind of face-to-face -face contact where possible. But ultimately, if you avoid anyone with symptoms, if someone's had a recent negative test, then great. Try and have sex with people who are already in your kind of close household contacts and avoiding face-to-face -face contact if possible. That That's the kind of overarching advice. Laura, many of the questions that have been sent into us are from people who are worried about obtaining the vaccine and having to tell their GP surgery about their status. In the news, Wales and more recently England made it easier for people living with HIV by removing the GP status rule. In this instance, how should people arrange their vaccines through the clinic if their GP doesn't know about their status? Good question. And that is great news. But frankly, it was news that got released a bit too early because no one knows the mechanism yet. So you can imagine how much... Um, how many inquiries that has generated. Uh, so in Wales, people can add patients to the appropriate group directly onto a database and they get their invite in the usual way. Um, in England, we'll be able to refer people directly to vaccine hubs, but we just don't know how yet. So as soon as we understand, we'll share that information. It's great that they've responded uh, to the calls from a number of organisations, including THT, the National AIDS Trust, uh, and some of the HIV NHS bodies, but we don't know how it will happen yet. Sure. So just um, keep keep in touch with your GP then? Absolutely. Keep in touch with your GP. And again, you, the Beaver website will be updated as soon as we know. So we'll be providing instructions to HIV clinics, but also make sure that patients are aware of what needs to happen. Excellent. Um, Laura, you mentioned uh, uh, demographics and the narrative that um, the, the Black, Asian and mixed ethnicity communities are, are disproportionately affected by covid is greater awareness and safety needed among these communities and, and how do we potentially achieve this? That's such an important issue. And, and yes, greater awareness is required. The, the, the challenge is that a lot of this is going to be driven by factors that those individuals themselves cannot address. They can't change the fact that they may be more likely to live in overcrowded housing more likely to work in occupations where the risk is higher. It's all well and good telling people to isolate and shield at home, but that requires the luxury of having the space to do so, and that just isn't an option for so many people. Therefore, it's all the more important that people do follow the advice they're able to and get the vaccine as soon as it's offered. And we know already that some of those higher risk groups are expressing more reluctance about having the vaccine. So ensuring that there is targeted messages 
led by people representative of those communities is absolutely crucial and it's something I know that NHS England are working on developing targeted safety information including vaccine advice and I think that's the best way forward but using people who are within those communities I think is absolutely essential to make sure those messages are heard. Perhaps part of the solution is, as you say, not so much bound in these communities' ability to make a change, but more so in the government's response to how they educate and support people with the clear targeted messages about the vaccine, particularly as many in these communities will also be shielding. Laura, as I've mentioned, I've received the vaccine back in January and it's been about six weeks since the first dose. If you are someone who is shielding, can you stop shielding after the first or second vaccine? Good question. At the moment, we don't have that information and that's not the government guidance. It may be that one vaccine, once the vaccine coverage is enough in the general population as well, because the vaccine's protective, but there's so many other things that drive risk. And when the when COVID is very common in the background population, that's going to increase the risk of transmission with any event. So if a vaccine is 60% effective after one dose, but COVID is very common in the community, there is still going to be a risk. When COVID is much less common, then the risk will be less. So I here would just follow government government advice. And, and when the advice adapts, which it will at some point, that once people have had their two vaccines, they no longer need to shield, that's the time to do it and not before. Brilliant. I've uh, had the opportunity uh, to speak with many uh, of, of your of your colleagues, your other, other HIV consultants over the course of the lockdowns, and all of them have expressed uh, wanting to resume their face-to-face appointments with patients. And I, and I know uh, from people that we've spoken to that they've really missed that interaction as well. Um, although services have witnessed disruption, are you hoping to see a return to those face-to-face interactions with your patients? Absolutely. I mean, we've always maintained, and it's the luxury of working in a big service, we've had the capacity to maintain a small amount of face-to-face activity for emergency issues, very vulnerable patients. By far, the majority of our consultations have been by phone. And yes, there is a sense amongst the staff, but also patients that enough now, you know, I'd quite like a face to face consultation. I don't think we'll go back to as many face to face consultations as we used to do, because actually many patients who are reluctant to try our telephone option in the past, we've always had that option available. They've actually experienced it now and are expressing a a preference. So I think most people, and we did a large patient survey to to address this, led by my colleague Stuart Flanagan at the Mortimer Market. And actually most patients would prefer a kind of hybrid, some face-to-face and some telephone. I think one of the key things is that people know how to access face-to-face care when they really need it. So if there's an issue between appointments or they decide the day before that actually they really need to see someone, we need to make sure we can offer that. So a flexible approach driven by patient choice. But I think all of this has meant that we've got better systems in place. We're going to start trying video consultations. Our psychology team were already using those, but we'll try and use those more broadly in our routine clinics. And actually, I think we'll end up with a kind of half and half type balance because for some people, it's, it's more convenient and preferable. For others, it really isn't. And that's why choice is so crucial. The British HIV Association continues to provide up-to-date information and guidance on COVID. And I know that as a platform, it's been really great for people living with HIV to have this resource, which, of course, we will include in the show notes of this podcast. Laura, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. 
Thank you. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. For more information and resources, we have included further details in the show notes of this podcast. A very special thank you to the LGBT Plus Consortium's LGBT Futures National Emergencies Trust Fund. If you need further support, you can contact us on 0207 713 or email us at info at positivelyuk.org. Now, take a moment to breathe, be safe, and we'll see you soon. Bye for now.